For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Welcome to the podcast, In and Through Exists to equip the church to be hearers and doers of the word. My name is Marshall. And I'm Tim. How are you doing, Tim? Is that a, a real question? Or, uh, <laughs> well, I know or how you habit. <laughs> it's maybe a little bit of both. <laughs> I know how you're doing, but. <laughs> oh, I'll, I'll just put the story out there. You know, I wasn't going to, I'll just put the story out there. Do it. We, we traveled over Christmas. Uh, we were, we were good and our last flight home, they went to seat us and I looked into the eyes of the woman that I was supposed to be sitting by and went, this woman is visibly sick. Oh man. And now I'm at home. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah. So with that being said, we just, uh, want to let listeners know, yeah, the audio quality might be a little off. We're going to try to get this episode out on time, but the the drop might be a little bit delayed too, depending on how things shake out. So we appreciate your grace. Right. Yeah. Listener. <laughs> it's, it's, the, it's the world we're in right now. It is. It is. But we are moving ahead. Nonetheless, the world is still turning and we're going to do our best to, to, to stay um, on track with this podcast because there's a lot of ground to cover this year. And today we're going to be focusing in on, well, specifically one year, but kind of, we could probably tag on a few years leading up to it. Uh, the events of 70 AD in Jerusalem and, right. uh, and, and the impact that that had um, not only on the nation of Israel, uh, but also on the church. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think when we, when we say 70 AD, we're, we're not, I, I would say people need to think of 70 AD, not necessarily as a 365 day period mm. across 12 months. Yeah, that's true. Right. But in, instead it, it's, it's sort of an event that culminated in that time based on a number of things. And, and that just sort of takes on the weight of it all in that way. Yeah. yeah so. That's, that's a, yeah, that's a good way to, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. So to get people caught up, I mean, we talked a little bit about what was going on in the Roman world with all these different emperors. Um, last episode, you know, during, during those first decades of the spread of the church. And we, we mentioned briefly Nero, um, Nero mm-hmm. started ruling in 54 AD and he is still going to be ruling during the lead up 270 AD, but not in 70 itself. Um, there's an interesting succession crisis that happens that we could talk about in a minute. But Nero um, is particularly brutal towards the Christian church. Oh yeah, and and just brutal as a person, mm. right? Like I, I I remember sitting in a doctor's office a few years back, and there was this National Geographic laying on the uh on the coffee table there that said rethinking nero and i was like okay this is you know because we live in this world that's like well maybe we've had it all wrong and we're gonna we're gonna right right and that's just the clickbaity thing to do and even though it was a physical magazine and nothing to click they're using the same thing right (laughs) this whole like everyone before us might have gotten it wrong let's reinterpret right and you opened it up and, and they legitimately did 
maybe Nero wasn't that bad kind of a thing. And then threw a tag on the end. Oh yeah, he did burn Rome to the ground and blame the Christians and literally lit them on fire. Uh, <laughs> but maybe maybe he was just troubled. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, like, you know what? Right, I will that agree is with grace. I will agree with the troubled part. That is that is That's certain. gracious. So Nero's rule is uh, characterized by, I mean, his own just oddity. We talked about it briefly, so we don't have to go too, too into it, but this just really weird ego thing, you know, thinking he's the greatest artiste of all time and all this nonsense, mm-hmm. but really a strong hatred towards not only the Christian church, but even members of his own family. Like the dude was just twisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Nero's rule as an individual doesn't necessarily have a direct impact on what is going on in Jerusalem because he is ruling through these governors or procurators in Judea um, who are kind of there representing the Roman Roman Empire. And um, although Pilate was, you know, Pilate at the time of Christ was, you know, um, kind of a middling figure. Some people liked him, some people didn't. They get progressively worse as time goes on. And yeah. there's a guy named Floris who comes onto the stage in 64 and he's, he's kind of in charge from 64 to 66. And this dude was like seriously hated. And there's a bunch of like little stories that you can read about, about incidents that, that kind of, that changed public opinion against him. I mean, the Jewish people were never happy about Roman rule, but they would tolerate it when the ruler was decent. But uh, in this case, this guy was pretty, pretty brutal. He, he took uh, 17 talents from the temple treasury. Now, I did a little research, a little math to figure that out. One talent is 6,000 denarii. So, and a denarii was a day's wages. So, if, you know, if you were to kind of factor in what minimum wage is today and use that as a as a an idea to get a sense of what this amount of money was, it was like 12 million dollars stolen from the temple treasury. So, a huge amount of of money. And right. uh, and yeah, people it, weren't happy about it. It's nothing to scoff at. No, not at all. Not at all. And so the, the Jewish people, they, uh, they, they don't revolt, but they mock him for doing this. Right. And, and, <laughs> and the thing is, the thing is, there's massive unrest when mm-hmm. he does it. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah. It, it's, not like, it's not like things were good, they were prosperous, and this money's piling up, and he's like, hey, I want some of that. Mm. It, would, it was kind of like, it was kind of like, summer of 2020 kind of stuff right (laughs) like the world the world is collapsing for jerusalem the world is collapsing in on itself right right in in a number of ways and there are actual and social political economic fires popping up all over the place Mm -hmm. and and he just has no sense of timing no not at all (laughs) not at all (laughs) <laughs> yeah, so there's a funny story about people who are kind of protesting this and they're passing around a basket begging for coppers for poor beggar florists. This cover. Right. Right. <laughs> and, and so and it's on the basis of that that he's like so offended that he marches down with an army army to Jerusalem to like deal with that because he's his personal honor and ego is so hurt that he needs to like deal with this firsthand. And when you say deal with it. Some historians say to the degree of 3,600 people dead. That's, yeah, that's what I saw. Yeah, like that, we're not talking about like coming in and saying like, hey, you guys better stop making fun of me. Like you're killing thousands of people. 
Uh, We're talking non-combatant citizens of Jerusalem. Women and children crucified over him being offended. Right. So, I mean, people aren't happy about this. And and this is where, I'm going to say this for you. This is is my (laughs) gift to you. Okay, thanks. Uh, Marshall has a post mill in what, what that, what that generally means is things are progressively getting better because of the knowledge of God and the spread of the gospel. Mm -hmm. We can see it across society. And a lot of times what we like to do in our, in our abbreviated lives, we look at it and we're like, yeah, but you know, eighties or the sixties or the fifties or whatever. And, and it doesn't seem better now. And we, we, Mm. we take these little bitty snapshots or we, we see this new leader come into power and we're like, oh, that, that person is, is a barbarian and, and out for their own good and, and you can't trust the government and all those things. Whatever level of degree of truth there might be to that, yeah. it was exponentially worse in the ancient world. Yeah. Like, can you exponentially. Imagine, can you imagine like a protest against Doug Ford and then... Right. Then the army comes in and kills thousands of innocent right. people, people who might not even been at the protest, just arbitrarily just murdering thousands of people because people said mean things about him. Right. <laughs> so that is the world. That is, that is what is going on. That is the world in which these people are so, living. So here, here's the thing. There, was, there have been anti-whatever rallies in Stratford. Yeah. Oh, sure. Right. Doug Ford comes in and a tenth of Stratford is slain in the streets. That imagine? would be the equivalent. That it's would crazy. be the equivalent. It's crazy. It's crazy. So in any case, uh, <laughs> there's this, this, whole, this whole, I mean, brutal response by, by Flores creates this whole convoluted mess, right? And, and he's, he's like, well, you know, I might as well take this, this messy situation to take even more money, but the people kind of push back and there's this weird thing and he pulls out and there's, there's all this convoluted mess that goes on in the, in the following months. And the Roman establishment decides to send a delegation to try and figure out what happened. Herod Agrippa, who was like the original Herod's grandson or great grandson or something like that Mm -hmm. decides to kind of, he tries to encourage the people to stop the rebellion. Um, But they don't really see it as a rebellion, right? They're, they're like, we're just defending ourselves from this abusive Roman. Um, and so the people are divided, right? Some are like, Hey, it's time. Now is the time to throw off the Romans. Other people are like, um, do you know the Romans? Do you know what business that they are you know, engaged in and what they're capable of? Um, so the people aren't even united on this. They're, they're all over the place. Yeah. And I, I know that, um, we, we spent last time talking about the apostolic period, the gospel period and that mm-hmm, sort of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, but these things show up in scripture as well. They do. Right? Uh, you preached Sunday on the triumphal entry. Why was it triumphant? Because there were people saying it's time to throw off the Romans. Yeah. Right? And, and what happens when, uh, when Jesus is brought to trial before the Jewish leaders? Some of them are saying, we've got to quiet this guy down because he's going to disrupt the peace that we have with Rome. Mm-hmm. And we can't afford to lose that peace with Rome, yeah. right? So, so these notions are vivid in Scripture, and and they go through here. 
we, we talked last time about the way Rome governed, that they would go in and they would conquer a land and they would make citizens of the people and sort of incorporate them and all of that sort of a thing. And, and yeah, maybe you don't want to live under Roman occupation, but in the end, maybe it, it's, it's, it could be worse. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jews weren't really that way because at their core, they believed in the divine right to their land mm-hmm. as promised to them by God. Yeah, it was an and, abomination for a Gentile to be over them. Right, and a theocracy where mm-hmm. God himself was their king and that sort of a thing. That was, that was the ideal and their mm-hmm. expectation. Uh, so the, the Jews face Roman assault in a way that other regions hadn't since Carthage. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And by the way, the siege on Carthage was as brutal as mm-hmm. the siege on Jerusalem. Yeah. yeah. Um, even to the point that they finally got so tired of them, they hit historic history says trucked salt in to just mm. make sure they could never grow their own food again so that they would be <laughs> entirely dependent on Rome. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's salt for the ground, by the way. I didn't say mm-hmm. that. Uh, and, 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 and in part, the Jews face this because they bring it on themselves with these revolts and these claims of this is the land given to us by God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so as this thing is shaking out, there is kind of a, a first Roman army that's sent against the Jewish people to put this down. And initially they kind of just do what the Romans do best, just walk through and decimate everyone. Uh, but then there is a, a really decisive battle, and I'm not going to go into the details of it, but essentially um, the, the Roman legions are ambushed by Jewish guerrilla forces uh, who kind of have the, the high ground all around, and they slaughter thousands of Roman soldiers, many more wounded. It's considered one of the worst military defeats that Rome ever experienced by a rebellious province. Um, and, you know, the Jews, they seize, they seize siege equipment, rams, catapults, all sorts of crazy stuff. Um, and so they're pretty hyped. They're, they're kind of living the high life at this point. I mean, one does not beat Roman war, on, you know, like that just doesn't really happen um, in general. <laughs> and, and yet, the, you know, these, these men who were you know, farmers and merchants and, you know, fishermen, like beat the Roman legions. And so they're riding now, high at this point. Yeah. At this point, at this point is the quintessential underdog story. Oh, totally. Yeah. Right. Like we, when we read in scripture, we read about Jerusalem and all of its mounts, right? These hills and mountains, right? That gives a military advantage. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Yeah. Knowing the terrain is, is huge for the, uh, for the local, the local Jewish forces. Uh, but the problem is, is they don't really capitalize on the success and there's all this infighting and struggle and betrayal and they're, they're literally killing each other after they've been successful. They're killing each other and, and, and kind of maneuvering politically to try and see who's going to be at the top of this pile now that you know, they've kind of thrown the shackles of Rome off temporarily. And meanwhile, the Romans are doing what they do, do best and saying, Okay, well, the first one didn't work, so now we're going to get a better general with a better army, and we're going to do it all over again. And enters in Vespasian uh, and his son Titus, who arrive uh, near Galilee with an army twice the size of the first one, uh, legions from all over 
uh, Syria, Egypt, all over the place. And uh, Vespasian is no joke. He's one of the greatest Roman generals of his time. He's won victories in Britain and Germany. He's, he's, he's a big deal. Um, and Nero has appointed him to put this thing to bed with an exclamation mark. Um, and he starts that from the north in Galilee, working his way down. Um, he just mows down with, with virtually no, no resist. Like he, they're just unstoppable at this point. Right. There's no, like their point in coming through is to just come through like a squeegee. Mm. Right. There's nothing left afterward to rebuild from Mm -hmm. so that they can be come at with renewed force from behind. Yeah. Right. They're just wiping the slate clean on their way in Yeah, and taking everything like supplying themselves for future battle along the way. So they're, Mm -hmm. they're leaving nothing. And at this point we should probably mention where we're getting a lot of this information from is from a guy named Josephus and Josephus uh, was one of the Jewish generals. He was essentially um, assigned to lead an, an army on behalf of this kind of newly freed Jewish group. Um, and he gets beat, essentially, in battle. And he's hiding out in a cave, right? He's, he's you know, he's, his forces have been decimated. Um, and he's hiding out in this cave with 40 other people. And he claims to remember that, you know, God revealed to him that this was all going to happen and that he needed to surrender to the Romans. And the people that he's with in this cave are like, no, you can't do that. We're not going to let you do that. So he's like, okay, tell you what, why don't we do this thing? Why don't we draw lots? And whoever draws the first lot kills the second and so on and so forth all through 40. And then that way we're not taking our own lives, but we're also not surrendering to the Romans. And lo and behold, who is last? And left standing, but Mr. Josephus. Uh, okay, so here's here's the issue with history, and this is something that people need to need to really allow to sink in mm-hmm. in history. Um, when we talk about the happenings of the last two years, mm. there's a lot of perspective. There's a lot of even now. At, a, at what wouldn't yet be historical record, it would be journalistic record, there's a lot of controversy over what really is taking place or has taken place and that kind mm-hmm. of a thing, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That has always been the case. And so history is interpreted from gathered information. Mm, yeah. Right? That's always the thing. Most generally, the gathered information comes from the victor. Yeah. Stories like that are like the the ultimate <laughs> set of wait, how did everyone with you you weren't alone? <laughs> now you're alone. How did that come to be? Well, well let me tell you. This, let me tell you about this mutual agreement <laughs> that I came up with that worked out in my favor. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I'm I'm not trying to throw the guy under a bus or anything. <laughs> I'm yeah. just going to say that I don't know if that would stand in a court of law. The young people would say it's, it's sus. It's sus. It's sus. It's definitely sus. Um, so in any case, um, he's brought to Vespasian and Titus and he, he's like, Hey, I'm so glad you guys got me. 
And, you know, um, you could send me to Nero, but you shouldn't bother because Nero is not long for this world. You, Vespasian, you're going to be emperor. You're obviously already the lord of the land and the sea and the land of me, and soon you'll be the, la- the lord of the Roman Empire. And, uh, you know, flattery works sometimes. And in this case, it did. Literally, if you can't beat them, join them. <laughs> right? That's exactly what happened. Yeah, he just hitches his, Josephus hitches his horse to the Vespasian wagon and, uh, and it works out for him. Um, yeah. He's treated relatively well for a prisoner. They, you know, they're like, this dude's got prophetic abilities, whatever. Um, and so, yeah, so he's kind of well, well treated. Um, I wonder if, if anyone in history was ever recognized as a prophet in that kind of a way mm-hmm. for saying like, no, you're doomed. They'd be like, <laughs> Hey, you know what? This guy obviously has prophetic abilities. We should keep him with us <laughs> because that might be useful. Yeah. Right. It's always the guy that says, no, you're going to be emperor. Yeah. That's yeah. the one. That's the one we want in the camp. Yeah. Right. That's the real prophet. Yeah. And I mean, as it turns out, Vespasian does become emperor. So Nero is kind of, okay. I'll give you the, the, the super short, form of this okay so nero is he loses the confidence of the people because the dude's just out of his mind and he tries to run away can't run away the soul his own soldiers won't help him do it um he ends up either killing himself or getting his personal secretary to do it for him because he chickened out or whatever um and you know he this all came about because of like high taxation and and so anyway Mm -hmm. so so this is what he does and then there's a guy named galba who had been the governor of spain uh, he's proclaimed emperor and, uh, you know, was still in Spain when he found out he wasn't even in Rome. Um, but then within like less than half a year, he's murdered by his own Praetorian guard, by his own personal guard. And this other guy, Otho becomes emperor. Um, so he's named emperor. Uh, but the problem is there's another governor out in Germany who his legions proclaim him emperor and they fight a battle and he loses. So he commits suicide three months after taking over. Then there's this new guy, the, the guy who was in Germany, he's proclaimed emperor. Uh, but it turns out that everyone east of Greece thinks Vespasian should be emperor. And uh, some other guy fights on Vespasian's behalf, beats this Vitellius guy. Like it's just, it's, it's called the year of four emperors. And it's essentially mayhem. it's mayhem. It's just like, it's crazy, right? You had like, we talked about these emperors who came before, right? And like, they're ruling for 10, 20, 30 years each, right? It's pretty stable. Mm-hmm. And they, you have a declared um, heir. And then when you go, he comes. And then all of a sudden, it's just like Rome, the greatest power in the world is just up for grabs. And you've got different regions rising up against each other, you know, regimes toppling and falling in a matter of like months, sometimes weeks. Like, it's crazy. Yeah, the instability um, is is just nuts. Unprecedented in Rome's history. Uh, absolutely unprecedented. And uh and so this is all going on kind of at the big level. Um and so Vespasian ends up going back to Rome to go become emperor and leaves Titus in control of the army to go take Jerusalem. Um he's kind of yeah, tasked and, and I to just, him. I just want to throw this in. It's going to be a bit of a spoiler but uh because we're in Stratford, I think it has to be said. Titus, the victorious Roman general, is not the one written about by Shakespeare. No, no. The Shakespeare played Titus Andronicus 
is a fictional play, not a historical. Yeah. Uh, he does write <laughs> histories. He does. And he does have one called Titus, Titus Andronicus. But to be clear, if you've, if you've sat through that play mm-hmm. or watched the movie, um, but this is Stratford. Yep. We don't stoop to the movie. <laughs> we went to the festival. Uh, yeah, neither neither is this Titus the Titus to which Paul wrote uh, a pastoral epistle. So <laughs> <laughs> was not it was not that Titus either. Boy, wouldn't that be a plot twist? That wow, right? Can you imagine? Anyways, yeah. anyway. so so Titus marches on Jerusalem, and the situation in Jerusalem is just brutal. People, different factions, people turning on each other. Um, the zealots who are kind of the most eager to fight Rome, they actually burn food stores in their own city to try and force the hand of the people to fight the Romans rather than wait it out. Like it's messed up, man. Like it's, it's you, you, bad. You talk about like, I know that we get the word zealot and zealous. So to, to make the comparison isn't necessarily clever. Hmm. But talk about being overly zealous. <laughs> yeah, yeah, seriously. Yeah, mm. that's, that's, that's fair. Um, so Titus essentially just, that what they do is they surround Jerusalem and they let people who are fleeing towards Jerusalem into the city because they're like, sure, use up their resources more. They, let them, they don't let anybody out, but they'll let people in. And they build a wall essentially to match the walls of Jerusalem, they build a wall around Jerusalem and then use that essentially as a way to, to invade. And it, it's a long siege. People are starving inside the city. Like we don't really have an appreciation for in our modern era for what siege warfare looks like, but I mean, mm-hmm. people are hungry. And when I mean yeah, hungry, like, it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was because there was a, all of this buildup is like, years of attacks and failed attacks mm-hmm. the <clears throat> the city had been built and built out mm-hmm. like suburbs and then walls wrapped around and then a new suburb and walls wrapped around and and a good portion of jerusalem had been taken by the romans by the time they built the wall the circumference wall around it mm-hmm. um and 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 it was even looking like the jews might prevail for sure. a little bit yeah yeah and then titus is just like Hey, we're going to have a contest, a wall building contest. And <laughs> whichever way. group gets their wall built first wins. And in three days, they had built that wall around Jerusalem. It's crazy. Yeah. A little competition doesn't hurt, right? You, you take a group of <laughs> alpha guys. Yeah. Like soldiers, 18 to 35 year olds. <laughs> yeah. You'd just, be like, I think he's yeah. faster than you are. And, and you get a wall built in three days. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. No, this Titus guy was, uh, yeah, he was no joke. He was pretty serious about this. So anyways, eventually the, the walls fall and Titus's army goes in. They utterly destroy the temple. They kill countless people. Josephus, the historian estimates that over a million people died during the siege, whether by famine or infighting, or fire, or Roman soldiers, whatever you want to call it, over a million people. Ma- I, mean, it's, I mean, it's a massive amount of people, even by today's standards, but in ancient standards, like it's unbelievable, the carnage of, of what would have happened. Um, and interestingly enough, he mentions that it happened on the exact same day of the Jewish calendar that the first temple was destroyed um, by the Babylonians, by Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, and I think that's an important segue. Like, 
when we look at how the Jew or where the Jews worship God, mm-hmm. it began in the tabernacle, which is the tent, right? That was part of Moses and the Exodus and all of that sort of thing. Um, and then we have Solomon's temple. Mm-hmm. David David wanted to build it. God said no, uh, because you've had you've messed up too many times, and I'm going to leave it to your son. So David builds up the stores so that when Solomon becomes king, everything's in place by and large. Solomon builds that temple. And then all throughout the prophets, the major and the minor prophets are all about you've turned away and you're losing the land. I'm going to wipe the land clean of you Mm -hmm. and you're going to be cast out. Mm-hmm. right that's the exile mm-hmm. and that temple is destroyed by the babylonians and doesn't exist anymore and then we get into people like nehemiah mm-hmm. and the coming back and the rebuilding of jerusalem and the rebuilding of the temple mm-hmm. um which takes place through the maccabees and the intertestamental period yep. um that just being the 400 years between the old and the new Testament. Yep. Um, and that is the temple that Jesus visits that the, that is the scene for much of the new Testament narrative. Mm-hmm. And that's the one in conversation here. Yeah. Yeah. Herod kind of took what Nehemiah had started and did a massive expansion project of it. Right. So that it was, it was glorious. It was, I mean, we, we put up a picture of it last Sunday to, to give people an idea of what it probably looked like. And, uh, it was, it was quite, it was quite the thing. I mean, I don't know, I don't know about a comparison to the original, but it was, it was something special and we're talking about a, like a massive structure. Um, but it is again, in this case, utterly destroyed by the Romans. Um, and so the question becomes, because we've talked a lot about history, we've talked a lot about this history between the, 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 you know, the Jewish people and, and the Roman occupiers. Where is the church in all of this? And what does any of this have to do with Christianity, right? That's what, that's what we got to talk about you know, in this episode because so that you know, people understand why, it, why this matters. Yeah, because the point of this is, it would be it would be easy for you and I to just be like the history stuff's cool. We love history. We're going to do this as a self indulgent thing. Right. <laughs> um, but as we always intro, the point of these is to help people be to encourage people to be hearers and doers of the word. Right, like mm-hmm. to encourage people in their faith to grow us in our faith, to grow us in our practice and our understanding of the things that we believe. Yeah, and so. If you're if you're trying this out and you're like, mm, I don't know if a history podcast is really for me. Uh, what we, we want to do is we want to take all of these things and pull them around to be like, this is this is the point of it for us mm-hmm. as followers of Christ. Yeah, yeah. So we get again from history, but now a church historian, a Christian historian, uh, Eusebius, he lets us know that as these events were taking place the siege of Jerusalem and some of the events leading up that were really horrific and terrible. Most of the Christians had fled Jerusalem. They, they'd left. 
um, they fled to a place, um, well, they kind of scattered everywhere, but a, a large group of them fled to a place called Pella, which was a city on the other side of the Jordan River in, in modern day, the, the modern day nation of Jordan. Um, but the, the, the point is that the early church knew that this was coming. This devastation, this terrible um, slaughter and famine and infighting and all of these things that occurred uh, were not really surprises to them because Christ had spoken of it in, in detail. Uh, he had prophesied regarding the fall of Jerusalem. And these prophecies are recorded in Matthew, in Mark, and in Luke um, in, in relatively great detail, to be honest. Right. And, and I, I think, too, like they had experienced that in Rome so much mm-hmm. under Nero that as, these, as that same persecution is, is spreading, their eyes are very open to the connection between what is happening and what Jesus has said. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Like I, I know, I know this is going to be tough for people. Mm-hmm. All right. I, I don't want to pretend like it's not. And if this is a crisis of faith moment for you, by all means, reach out to us in an email, please. And, and we can, we can tell you kind of where we're at on, on how we interpret these situations. Cause even though we don't interpret them identically, we we're very, much in step with this um we look at statements like there will be wars and rumors of wars and we think boy that's awfully vague Mm. and haven't there always been wars and and aren't there always rumors of wars and and we're waiting for the oh it's going to be the big one right there's there's going to be a big war and all of this kind of stuff um but those people there in that moment it was it was very on point for them yeah the people who received these gospels in their original form or the people who had maybe even heard jesus speak some of these words this had a different level of contemporary application for them i guess you right and when when jesus warns about the coming persecution Mm -hmm. and the tribulations that are to come Mm-hmm. I want to be entirely respectful of the fact that we have brothers and sisters around the world who live under tribulation and martyrdom mm-hmm. in a way that I never will. Mm-hmm. But the tribulation that the church was under immediately after Jesus and in this period was dare i say great yeah 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 well i mean so in all in matthew mark and luke these conversations start up when the disciples are pointing out the temple and talking about how great it is and he's like you know there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down and then immediately goes into this conversation but you know talks about what you said like the wars and rumors of wars right and and again i I mentioned this briefly when we were talking about the history but rome was a pretty stable place for the most part there were some expansionist conflicts but you didn't have the empire being torn apart from within you didn't have the nation of judea not only having an uprising against the romans but they were 
different rebel factions were fighting wars against themselves while fighting the Romans and killing one another. This was an unprecedented time, at least in, in, in the, the recent history of those who, who were living at the time. This, this was a, an amount of military economic chaos that um, they were not familiar with, that didn't exist, that wasn't going on at the time when Jesus was in his ministry. Um, was entirely different than what those generations had kind of grown up in. Uh, very, very different situation. Uh, famines and earthquakes, tribulation, persecution, uh, betrayals and infighting. I mean, you see these things playing out in the lead up to this massive event. Right. Uh, sorry. That was a that was a good radio moment there. A little blip of <laughs> silence. That was that was both of us realizing we're out of our normal recording studio and process, and neither one of us have a clue how long we've been talking. <laughs> this, this could be a long one. This could be a long or, one. Oh well, or surprisingly short. Who knows? Uh, the, we're not pacing ourselves the way we normally would with a timer. No. All right. Yeah. Yeah. And and it, it, it's unprecedented. You're right. It's not only unprecedented for the church, as we were saying previously, and mm -hmm. their persecution for the Jews, their infighting and persecution. It's unprecedented mm -hmm. for Rome. And so the whole thing's mm -hmm. a powder keg. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and so we see all of this going on, right? And Jesus commanded uh, the Christians. He said, you know, when you see um, armies surra like surrounding Jerusalem, or when you see um, you know, these, diff these different things playing out, um, you need to flee. You need to run away. You need to get out of there. And that's what the Christians did. They understood that what he was talking about was the events that were leading up to the fall of Jerusalem. And, and so they, they made that connection. Oh, Jesus was talking about this when he said that, and therefore it is time for us to flee to the mountains. And that's what they did. Um, and in doing so, preserve themselves um, so that the gospel could continue to spread. Um, so, I mean, th there, there's a sense in which these, these passages, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, you know, I, I think there's room perhaps to say, well, maybe he was talking about something then and something that will also come in the future. Um, I, I think there's, there's, there's room for that opinion. Mm -hmm. Um, but to say that what Jesus is talking about had nothing to do with what happened, I think really you're, you're neglecting what the words that Jesus said and the, and the, uh, relevancy of his words yeah. for the people who read them. Right. Yeah. And, and theologically, this is called preterism. Mm -hmm. I, I think we should acknowledge that just to say in the past, uh, preterism and in the this is not to take a, a preterist position which is to say all the predictions of Jesus about the end of time everything that takes place in Revelation all of that is historical event mm -hmm. um, that would be a full-on preterism yeah not pe not many people hold to that view no That's no not common very few do mm -hmm. uh, because it makes the here and now awkward and yeah <laughs> it's like what is um, now then yeah <clears throat> right is this the new heaven and new earth? Because <laughs> I don't feel that way today. Yeah, I've never uh, met a full preterist personally. I've no, never met one. but but partial preterism is to say 
some portion and a good portion mm-hmm. of the things predicted in scripture have taken place. Mm-hmm. And and some of the some of the initial pushbacks to that fall into this category. One, they're written in future tense. Mm-hmm. Two thousand years ago, they were written in future tense. Mm-hmm. Right? Which means they could at this point have been fulfilled. Yeah. Right. The tense of the writing of the scripture is not going to change place. It will at some point become a current or historical event. Yeah. And and so we, we, we can't lean on, well, it's always spoken about as a coming thing to be expected. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's a thing. A- another thing that I would would point to in this that I, I think gives weight to <clears throat> a bit of a, a, a preterist partial preterist perspective is um, Jesus in his telling of the church, you need to get out and not be a part of this. Mm-hmm. He doesn't call them back mm. the way that earlier prophets did. Right. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, earlier prophets said you're going to lose the land but right there will be a preservation of those who will be brought back i will rebuild this city and those kinds of things right um so when we talk about jesus's kingdom being not of this earth Mm -hmm. when we talk about it being a heavenly kingdom we talk Mm -hmm. about um the foundations of the christian faith being judaism but even in the practice of law and those things have been fulfilled and the the church as the people of god um that has a physical thing to it as well right and that door in my mind the physical presence of god's people in a physical land closes with with christ in his ministry Mm -hmm. but that door is broken down and taken off of its hinges here in 70 ad yeah just just 40 years later yeah so let's not let's not think that that we're talking like hundreds of years later and what about this weird sort of in-between phase right like Mm -hmm. if you think about it as something has died Mm -hmm. and then in its death there's been decay And to the point that it's just no longer, mm-hmm. I think that's what's taken place over these 40 years. Right. Yeah. And I mean, and again, this, there's a variety of interpretations on these words and, and, yep. but, but when Jesus, when Jesus talks about, you know, um, this generation will not pass away before these things take mm-hmm. place. I mean, some people have said, well, when he says this generation, he's talking about that potential generation that exists, you know, 2000 plus years after what he's talking, talking about grammatically, that's really difficult in the Greek to, to justify. It's possible. It's um, hard to do in English. It's hard to do in English. I know. Um, right? Like this, this generation, it just like, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whatever yeah. generation it happens in, that yeah. was the generation. There it, are it, different it, Greek words for this and that mm-hmm. just like there are in English. And so, right. When he says this generation, um, 
take you know if we want to read it literally take take him at his word then um that this this generation so 40 years later um you know when those you know some of those people were still around uh these things these things took place as as a form of judgment against israel for not receiving their messiah um, mm-hmm. that's, that's what it is, right? God, mm-hmm. like, and just because we don't get that, re- this, these events recorded in scripture, right? It's not as though like God doesn't stop working in history. The moment the new Testament is finished being written, right? God still works through historical events. And so yep. God executes judgment against the nation of Israel for rejecting Christ, um, in 70 AD. That is what is happening. And that's what Jesus predicts. That's what Jesus laments. Mm-hmm. Um, that's what Jesus, like his, his, his opinions, his feeling, Jesus's feelings about what is going to happen are, are complicated, right? Because he yeah. grieves over it. And at the same time, he pronounces it. He says, this is, right. this is what you deserve, but it breaks my heart. And it's um, so perfectly in step with the prophets before the exile. Totally. Totally. Who grieve, they grieve on behalf of God mm-hmm. at the rejection of the law. Mm-hmm. So there was the rejection of the law, and now there's the rejection of the Messiah, mm-hmm. and and the two, not not only the w- when you see it this way, and and this might be like a mind blowing moment for some people. <laughs> I just I just picture I just picture some people listening to this who've sat under only dispensational construct of how those passages should be read going, hold on, this is so confusing. But if you, if you look at these as a historical record written for that generation because 70 AD and the destruction of the temple was coming, mm-hmm. then you see that the, the parallels between pre-exile prophets and Jesus in the pre-destruction of, seven of the temple, mm-hmm. the, the statements that were made, the heart behind it, the, the heart of Israel at the time, they are so in lockstep. It's crazy. And the one difference that I think is the greatest of differences is that in this one, or uh, two, two, in, in this one, there is no call to return back to Israel mm-hmm. there, and with a connection to the physical. Mm-hmm. And there's no promise for a future expectation other than i am the way the truth and the life right 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 so it seems like an establishment of this is the new expectation which Mm -hmm. is me and uh and and those are the only two differences other than that yeah it's almost same song second verse like i said the same day of the jewish calendar like this is there is there are parallels on top of parallels here. It's crazy when you, when you start digging, this is something I, I didn't even know that until yesterday <laughs> doing my research, right? It's like, you just dig into this stuff and it's crazy. It's crazy how you see these, these parallels happening. Um, I think the last thing we can, we can kind of talk about um, or one of the things, last things we can talk about is what, what this event had, the impact that this event had on the ongoing history of the christian church right i think what we need to remind ourselves of is in the early decades of the church the jerusalem church was the epicenter 
of Christianity. It was the place. And while Paul and his companions went out and other evangelists and missionaries went out and planted churches amongst various communities, some of them might have even been of a decent size. None of them compared to the Jerusalem church in those early decades. Right. And now all of a sudden, because the city has fallen, because the people knowing the words of Christ have fled being obedient to what he's called them to do. Now that that central location and the people who were there, it's been scattered. Um, and so now we don't have Jerusalem as the dominant center. It wasn't just the dominant center of Judaism. It was the dominant center of Christianity in the early right. church. Yep. And that now it's not. And now you've got these other places like in Rome and in Asia Minor, like Ephesus or, or, or Antioch in Syria or Alexandria and Egypt and these other places where there's not really a unified single spot where where that kind of took over at least not immediately mm -hmm. it maybe it does further down the road but you kind of have this adjustment that the church has to make right it's a it's a coming of age crisis right it's like it's a being a young person and your your parent passing away and suddenly you need to grow up real quick real fast Right. Um, and that's what kind of happens to the the church that that is scattered throughout the the Roman Empire and beyond. They they have to they have to kind of keep going without without mom and dad, so to speak. Yeah, and you know, you said a thing there that I, I don't want us to to skip past mm. um, because when you said it, it really sort of landed home for me mm. about the depth of faith and the resilience of the early church mm. and how, how passionate they were for the hope that they had found in Christ. Because when you were listing the places where the church becomes very centralized and key for the region, mm -hmm. you mentioned Antioch and Ephesus and Galatia and Rome. Mm -hmm. And for all of the first half of this episode, knowing everything that the Romans were doing and the way they were so aggressively coming at the church, all that Nero had done and these things carried on by Vespasian that inside the city itself, there was still a church that was not just hiding in pockets of undeclared believers, but mm. that was, a center for their region for mm -hmm. faith in Christ. Yeah. It's just mind blowing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. humbling. It is. It really is. Right. I mean, you know, there's a growing sentiment. I got a message from a family member today regarding a recent government decision that might have impacts on how churches operate to some degree in kind of a niche way. Um, and I won't get into the, it here, but you know, it, it's, it's a thing. It, it's a sure. thing, but, sure. but you know, when I, when I take a moment to consider church history and consider what the church in Jerusalem or the church in Rome, like you said, the, the opposition that they received, you know, just being pitted as the most evil, like the threat to society right like 
they they needed to go they were you know enemies of the peace or whatever you know however they were um described by the various establishments at that time like that is so far beyond what we experience now even with a a public opinion in our secular government that seems to be kind of turning away from a pro church kind of mentality um and so what does that tell us well it tells us that first off we should be grateful for the situation we're in to some degree right we have lived under a grace and a peace um that is not the expectation given to us in scripture no it's not the norm it is it's a privilege it is it is and And that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that we just graciously turn it over and say oh it was a privilege it wasn't mine to expect anyway so right i'm not concerned (laughs) or i don't care that things are changing that's not the point to say Mm -hmm. that is that's just to bring some sobriety to the conversation yeah yeah put it in the context of church history and i hope that that will be something that we're able to do as we move through and as we see discussions and situations and persecutions and divisions and all of these various things that we're going to come to on our journey this year that we can look at these things and not just say hmm those are interesting facts i you know i'm a little bit smarter now like or i know more facts right. about this thing but that we can actually look at those situations and and kind of span that that bridge of hundreds, even thousands of years, and say, okay, this was true then, and it's still true today. You know what? That is a beautiful wrap up. Well then, but we can't wrap it up there because I got one more thing that I okay. can say. <laughs> <laughs> say your thing, Tim. I'm sure it's my, good. My my last point in this uh, thing, a thing that we need to take away from that from the notes of 70 AD and mm. what took place in that event mm-hmm. um, is there are a lot of people who argue against the, the, the authenticity of scripture by saying it was written hundreds of years later. Mm. Right. Um, and they want to late date everything and they, they give their reasons for it. But, but here's the thing. I believe all of scripture was completed before 70 AD. I agree. I, I stand by that firmly. And the reason is it would be irresponsible of an author of scripture not to interpret these events into his writings. Yeah. Right. It, 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 if, if inspired by God, these men are writing and they're not interpreting these events into that, it would be irresponsible. Yeah. It would also be very much unlike God who used the events of the moment throughout all of scripture mm-hmm. to explain himself. Right. Right. Anyone writing back historically, the word is pseudepigraphy, right? Mm-hmm. It's like me writing something and pretending that I'm Marshall because people would rather hear from Marshall than myself. Well, it'd be right? more like you writing, pretending to be Spurgeon. <laughs> I, I was hoping you're going to say you writing pretending to be me. Uh, <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> Which is not true. But anyway, you get the point. Yeah. yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Anyone writing pseudepigraphy to be like, Oh, this is from John. And, and it's his rep. You know what? For that person historically to write in and not talk about something as catastrophic mm-hmm. as the temple no longer exists. Mm-hmm. And, and when we, 
I, I just, I don't know that we did a good job, Marshall, of talking about the level of devastation. Right? When Jesus says no stone, un- no stone will stand on another, mm-hmm. that becomes the literal expectation. Mm-hmm. Right? The wailing wall, as we talked about in the pre, is, is probably an outer boundary wall that was a part of a suburb thing by Herod yeah. and not a temple wall because there's nothing left. When, when we look mm. at archaeology inside of uh, Jerusalem, when we have a city built on top of a city. It, it's uh, The joke that I made earlier was it, it, it's not like the sand slowly built up and you're like, hey, we used to have a two-story house and now all of a sudden we have a bungalow with a basement, right? <laughs> That's not how Jerusalem gets buried, right. right? It gets buried because after Titus finally wins this, he literally bulldozes the place, mm-hmm. burns it to the ground and bulldozes the place so that there's nothing left, so that archaeologists have questions. Where in Jerusalem was the temple exactly, yeah. right? And, and or was the first temple, the second temple in the same place? It's hard to tell. It's hard to tell because there was nothing left. Yeah. We didn't talk about things like cannibalism yeah. that was taking place, according to Josephus, mm-hmm. inside of Israel because it got that bad yeah. in the Roman occupation. These things were catastrophic, and not to mention them mm-hmm. is unthinkable. It's yeah. just unthinkable. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And a lot yeah. of secular historians agree with me on that. Yeah. No, well, that's, yeah, I think that's, that's helpful for us too to, to kind of wrap our minds around a how confidence did, in, history gives a confidence in scripture is what I'm trying to yeah, say. That's, yeah, and I think that's helpful for people. I think, I think they'll be encouraged by that. So, Well, everyone, thank you for listening. This podcast is a resource of Memorial Baptist Church in Stratford, Ontario, in cooperation with the Gospel Coalition of Canada and is produced by Alex Walker. Thanks for listening. Next time. <laughs>